Well, good evening and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad that you are joining us. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast dedicated and guided by your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right. Any honest question that you have, they are welcome to be sent in through our various platforms and we delve into the Bible to find the answers. So as long as you're looking for an answer from Scripture, that's what we're here to do today. And we are very glad that you are joining us. Hope you're well. Hope you're warm. And glad that you are here. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be fielding those questions as they come on in through the various platforms. And with me today, father and son team, Pastor <laughs> Scott Richards and Pastor Sean Richards. Yes, they are related. And I'm related to, to you by way of Christ. We're all brothers in or the Noah. Lord. I guess we're all sixth cousins, I heard it. Oh, okay. Once. Well, even better, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But how you doing, Sean? All in the family. All in the family, that's right. Are you feeling well? I know you've been, you've been under the weather. Yeah, we're recovering. The last time someone taped me upside down to a tree, the last time involved clown makeup, so we're improving. What, what is this about being held upside down? What happened? Is it your bachelor party or something like that? Any help over here, Pastor Scott? <laughs> I was duct taped to a pole during my bachelor party. <laughs> well, he didn't have a there bachelor party. There was a lot party. of silly string involved, as I, I recall as There is well. talk from Sean of being hung upside down, and I'm still not sure exactly what happened or whether he's going to reveal it maybe next week. I don't know. But uh, if you have any uh, answers to that, maybe call in. Let us know if you were the culprit. But anyway, Pastor Scott, how are you doing today? <laughs> I You're am doing fantastic. upright and vertical. I am doing fantastic. It is just Wonderful to be back among the living and uh, looking forward to answering uh, people's questions on the Word. Yep, that's right. And we never know where it's going to go. It's always exciting to see the, the, the quick turns that our questions uh, take and make. Well, like I said, uh, Reason for Hope is a live uh, broadcast. Um, we welcome your questions to come on in. We're with you Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And wherever that is around the world, of course, we're you know, going live on the internet. So wherever you are, we know we have people from all around the world, including my very own parents and brother, who's sometimes in Japan. So uh, we're very glad you join us from wherever you are. You can join us through our website at calvarychristianfellowship.com. A Reason for Hope is a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona, where we're broadcasting from. So you can go to calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you go to the Watch Live tab right there, that will take you to our live page. When we're off air, you'll see a countdown to our next broadcast and a schedule of Reason for Hope's coming up. Not only that, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, Wednesday evenings and Sunday mornings. And if we're live, you'll see us live there, and there'll be a chat function where you can join us. So that's at ccftucson.online.church, but you can find that link on our website too. You can join us on Facebook, of course, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, facebook.com slash ccftucson, or just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and we go live there. And of course, there's a chat box there as well. We have an app. Again, keep in mind, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Search for that on your mobile app store, uh, whether it's iPhone or Android or your iPad or whatever kind of mobile device, but also on Roku and Apple TV. Should you want to watch us on your big screen, that's very exciting for you, I'm sure. You can join us there as <laughs> yes. well. On YouTube, our channel is called A Reason for Hope. That's A Reason for Hope. On YouTube, the actual handle is at a reason for hope five four six. But you don't need to know that. Just put in the search bar like normal people, and you will find us there as well. You can follow Pastor Scott here on Twitter. Um, his handle is at Scott R four H. That's Scott R four H, where he posts updates um, or highlights from the show and updates on world happenings and prophecy updates and all that kind of good stuff. So that's somewhere you can follow along with him twenty four seven. 
And last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio, you are listening to our uh, previous show pre-recorded, so you're kind of a day behind there, but you can send your questions to questionsforhope at gmail, and we will be glad to get to those questions on our next show and consider joining us on one of those live platforms when you're not on your drive time, and then you can uh, follow along as we are live, as I have said. Well, with all that being said, I'm going to go take a nap. And, and would, would, you, would one of you guys like to uh, to pray for us? Sean, how about you? Would you like to pray today? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, thank you. We have the chance to be in your word among your people. And we ask in your spirit, equip us to glorify your name and to do so through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. 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 Well, I didn't touch base with you before the show, Pastor Scott. Was there anything going on in the world you'd like to updates us on sometimes you have an yeah update or... we uh we spoke uh, on uh, wednesday about uh, big dust up in israel itamar uh, ben giver uh who is the uh, uh cabinet uh, level uh minister of security in israel that is he runs the entire uh, jewish police force now uh visiting the temple mount on a very significant day uh the 10th of tevet which is a jewish fast day uh, commemorating the uh, surrounding of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. The first surrounding and siege of Jerusalem took place during the time of Jeremiah. Well, uh, Minister Ben Giver uh, took that day to uh, go on a 13-minute uh, tour of the Temple Mount area, and uh, doing so uh, created a huge hue, cry, and uproar, even to the point where the United Arab Emirates and China decided to bring uh, the nature of Minister Ben Giver's uh, journey on the Temple Mount to the UN Security Council, which met yesterday in an emergency session uh, to discuss what had gone on there. Uh, just uh, the usual sound and fury signifying nothing uh, immediately ensued. Uh, we are uh, told that Israel, Israel's envoy to the United Nations uh, seized the opportunity to uh, lash out at the Palestinians, where he described as poison and lies at an emergency Security Council session. Uh, the council members, including the United States, repeatedly stressed the importance of maintaining the status quo at the Flashpoint compound, as it is called, uh, while the Palestinians mourned of violence and denied any Israeli claim to the site the holiest in Judaism. Uh, Israeli Ambassador Gilad Erdan said the meeting held in response to the visit by Ben Giver on Tuesday was absurd and hypocritical. Uh, the 13-minute site was met with international condemnations, including condemnation by the United States. Uh, now, just to clarify this, uh, Jews can visit the Temple Mount according to what is called the status quo agreement that Israel worked out with uh, the surrounding Arab nations, and particularly Jordan, in 1967, they cannot pray on the Temple Mount. They are restricted from doing that. In fact, any visitor, including Sean and I, when we were there, they make it very, very clear that prayer, adopting a pose of prayer, saying a prayer out loud, absolutely forbidden, going to get you uh, bum-rushed by a, a group called the Wakfa, which is the Jordanian uh, equivalent of uh, the Princess Bride's Goon Squad. Uh, they uh, they really are quite uh, disagreeable and rude people, I would have to say, wow. in my experience. Uh, so uh, this uh, Itamar Ben-Giver goes up on the Jewish Temple Mount, and he did so, as we mentioned, significantly 
the, uh, the passages, like, for instance, in Ezekiel 24, talking about a fast on the 10th month of uh, the 10th day of the, the 10th month, which was on uh, Tuesday, mm-hmm. really significant. Uh, also, a passage in Zechariah speaks of this fast being turned into a time of joy associated with the idea that the temple would become a place where people from all over the world would worship God. Mm-hmm. And so Ben Giver in the past has been an advocate for the rescinding of the prayer restriction on the Temple Mount. His point is pretty easily articulated. Uh, Israel believes in freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Why is this the only place in Israel where neither are allowed? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the, the debate goes on. The idea that uh, the status quo uh, agreement was violated. It was in no way, shape, or form violated by Ben Giver's visit. However, uh, it was really interesting uh, that uh, Itamar Ben Giver uh, was uh, criticized uh, not just uh, by uh, Jews, but also by some of his fellow uh, uh, ministers uh, in the Jewish Knesset. Uh, one member of the Jewish Knesset, uh, Moshe Gafni, an Orthodox Jew, criticized Ben Giver for going to the Temple Mount at all. And this is uh, the, the reason I bring this up is it will just show you uh, what a uh, kitten mauled ball of yarn this whole situation is. Uh, not only do the Palestinians freak out about uh, cabinet level minister going to the Temple Mount, uh, not only did the United Nations Security Council meet on the behest of the uh, United Arab Emirates and China. But um, half of uh, Israel, especially the Orthodox side of Israel, uh, were criticizing Ben Giver for for going to the Temple Mount. Why? Uh, Well, uh, an Orthodox Jew is not a leftist. Uh, They ask the question, what is his problem? Well, here's the problem. You go up on the Temple Mount, you are going on the area that used to be uh, the place where the temple was located. Uh, there are differing ideas about where specifically on the Temple Mount the Holy of Holies would be. And so by the lights of uh, pretty hardcore Orthodox Judaism, uh, going up on the Temple Mount would risk a non-Levitical, uh, non-Jewish high priest going into the Holy of Holies, or at least the site of the Holy of Holies, in the eyes of God, not on the Day of Atonement, not having performed the proper rituals, not having, say, uh, taken even a ceremonial bath before you'd approach. And so they pull their hair out by the roots and say, no Jewish person should ever go on the Temple Mount. Now, other rabbis would say, no, it's an obligation uh, to go up on the Temple Mount. So there's this huge spiritual debate that goes on here. You've got the UAE and China uh, criticizing Ben Giver for going on the Temple Mount. You've got uh, the official State Department of the United States criticizing Ben Giver for going on the Temple Mount. Uh, You have got uh, Moshe Gaffney and other Orthodox Jews criticizing Ben Giver for going up on the Temple Mount. Mm. But Itamar Ben Giver really doesn't care. (laughs) He's going to do what he's going to do. Now, uh, the, the thing that I think prophecy watchers need to keep in mind is that we do see in, in specific predictions, particularly relating to the disposition of the temple uh, going into the tribulation period, that there is going to be 
uh, a division of the temple that is going to be made mm. where part of it is going to be given to the Gentiles and part of it is going to be given to the Jews. Mm. So uh, what Imar Ben-Giver is doing, in a sense, is greasing the skids in this direction. Uh, you know, the, the idea uh, that uh, only Muslim prayer is going to be the status quo. It's not going to last forever. Now, whether the status quo agreement finally gets changed sometime prior to the tribulation period, sometime prior to the rise of the Antichrist, or I believe, my two cents worth, it may be likely that part of the strong covenant that the Antichrist will make with many nations described in Daniel chapter 9 uh, may uh, be that concession. It may be that divvying up of this holy place. The Antichrist's obvious agenda on that is he wants a temple to be rebuilt because the halfway part of the tribulation, he will go into that temple and declare himself God to be worshipped. Mm. He doesn't care about the Jews. He's going to hate the Jews. He's going to uh, put together Holocaust 2.0 against the Jews. Two-thirds of the Jews are going to be wiped out by the Antichrist, as yeah. a matter of fact. Uh, we're told in passages like Zechariah chapter 12. But uh, he, as a means to an end, uh, the Temple Mount will be rebuilt. I think it's likely that uh, the status quo, as we understand it today, will continue mm. until the Antichrist comes to power. I believe the event that will allow the Antichrist to come to power will be the chaos that's going to go down in the world mm. when uh, the rapture takes place, when suddenly you have millions of Christians vanishing, uh, the turmoil that we saw at 9-11 when 3,000 people uh, left this world. That's true. Tremendous. Yeah. Could you imagine, uh, according uh, to the uh, Barna organization, uh, 54 million uh, mm. professing evangelical uh, evangelical Christians in the United States say he's half right. 25 million people vanishing in the United States. Yeah. Uh, leaving behind credit cards and mortgages and and, and what have you. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a, an incredibly uh, catastrophic event. The Antichrist is going to be the one who brings order out of this chaos. And for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, people are going to think he's the neatest thing since sliced bread. Right, right. So I, I think we're seeing another step in that direction. I think that's mm. probably the best way to look upon it. Mm. Uh, you know, as we posted on our Twitter feed, uh, the comment on it all was this was a lot to paraphrase Shakespeare, sound and fury signifying yep. nothing as far as the UN is concerned. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very significant that someone as influential and as highly placed as Itamar Ben-Giver in the Netanyahu uh, government uh, sees the opportunity within a week of the government coming into power to make this kind of symbolic gesture. So mm -hmm. I, th I think we're moving in that direction. Wow. Wow. No. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for that update. Interesting stuff. And our response is always pray. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and make sure you're ready for the Lord's return. He could come at any time. Yeah, that yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk about that on Sunday here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. So Yeah, oh, yeah. great. Yeah. Great, good stuff. Well, thanks again, Pastor Scott, for that. Uh, we have questions coming in already and a couple of leftover questions from uh, yesterday that are still fresh, though. A uh, question from Taylan. Can you guys explain Romans 14, 13 through 16, what it means and how to apply it? I have it here. I can read it. Uh, Romans 14, 13 through 16. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean in itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food 
um, the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. So can you guys shed a little light on that, those verses and um, how to apply those? Yeah, yeah, the situation is mentioned in 1 Corinthians as well. The controversy in the early church was people coming out of a pagan background were, of course, still in access to pagan rituals and temples, and there they pro- uh, had provided meat markets regarding the animals that were sacrificed there, among other things. And what was interesting about the animals is that early Christians were concerned by this. They were wondering, and it is mentioned in the Jerusalem Council, uh, if they should eat things that have been strangled or from blood, the animals that hadn't been bled according to proper kosher rituals. And what's interesting is that, of course, you had two people on two different sides of the camps, those who Paul himself describes mature in the faith, people who recognize food is food, meat is meat, it's not evil meat or Satan meat, right. it's something that God created <laughs> to be enjoyed, and that's something that is very sternly reminded, not only in 1 Corinthians, but also in the letters of Peter and Timothy as well. Another interesting thing is that when you had people on the other side of this camp, people who were saying, look, I came from that background, I know what they did to those animals, I just I can't break the association with something that I've turned away from in my former life. As far as modern interpretation, you can say, you know, I used to struggle with alcoholism. I just, I can't be in that bar. It's not because the, right. that uh, series of wood, brick, and mortar are somehow satanic, but it's stumbling me. That's the idea. I am an opportunity to walk in a straight path, and this is making that harder. I don't want to watch certain movies because I struggle with those areas. I don't want to you know, go to certain places, be around certain people. I'm making sacrifices because of my weakness. Now, what's interesting is that Paul doesn't condemn that attitude of wanting to avoid certain things so that you could focus instead on Christ, where the vulnerability, and this is the point of explanation, and the judgment that he's talking about are put into proper perspective is if there's someone trying not to be the bad guy and there's someone who could be the bad guy, both of you be the good guy. That's <laughs> always the best case scenario. If in your case you see I'm not stumbled by that, but they are, you're walking in love by considering their weakness. Mm-hmm. But if on the other hand they say, I am stumbled by this, and I'm not dumb enough to willingly put myself in a bad situation that I know of, that's also smart, that's wise, that's walking in love with God as a priority. Paul's advice to the person on the other end of the spectrum who's not stumbled by this is say, don't give them reason to act foolishly, to say, well, they can handle it, so can I, because that removes the first intention on their part, to avoid Mm -hmm. sin and pursue Christ person who doesn't see sin isn't sinning. He's right. But the person who's avoiding sin also isn't sinning. He's making a good decision. The fact that we're stumbled, vulnerable, or strong, or weak in certain things, obviously I'm going to struggle in areas different than most people and in very peculiar ways because I have a different brain than other people. I have a different life than different people. And the nature and the foundation of what sin is and isn't doesn't change. It's not God's nature. But notice the definition of sin is in the nature, not in the substance of something. If someone, and I can just speak from experience here, is engaging in some sort of, let's say, marital activities, and I'm not married, 
I, as a single man and someone who struggles with the lust of the eyes, have to avoid it entirely, not just because of my own weakness, but the fact I'm not married. But in their context, they could not only see it in its proper context, participate it in its proper context, and also note not to involve or make comments to their wife, which in its own context is a good thing, but avoid stumbling me. That's what's being talked about here. When we see the word judge, it's oftentimes the secularist attempt to rip Matthew 7-1 and the first two words of the verse out of context and say, well, Scripture says judge not, so stop judging. Judge means to come to conclusions. If my conclusion is this is leading me to sin, then have regard for your brother's maturity and weakness and enable them to walk in love. If I'm in a place where, oh, I have strength in this area because I don't see it as sin, know that you're not sinning because you're also walking with God as the priority. If both people consider what they do and why with that as the priority, as long as it's not dumb and self-deceived, it's like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to uh, open up a porn shop for Jesus. You know, I'm going to make a biblical <laughs> pornography. And people have attempted to do that, by the way. The point of emphasis is there are things that are sinful by nature. There are things that are negotiable, but the conscience is what needs to stand or fall before God. Make sure that you have a regard for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Titan, thank you. Thanks for being a regular on the show and for, uh, for your question. Hope that helps you out. Um, Question on Isaiah 19 from Jamal. Basically, what is Isaiah 19 talking about? If you guys could shed some light on um, that for us. Isaiah 19 is a follow-up on a series of prophecies addressing two nations, uh, Egypt and um, Ethiopia, which was basically a northern African region. Um, Both were, of course, on poor terms with the God of Israel because of their treatment of the Jewish people. But Ethiopia was basically given a prediction that they were going to be taken over by Assyria, and Egypt was told, you're next on the menu because it's on the same route into Africa. When in Isaiah 20, they're told that they are both going to be essentially restored from this time of judgment, 19 is, interestingly enough, a description of a time where they'll be given over to a cruel king of the north. Now, there's a short fulfillment in the reference to Sargon II, the king of Assyria that would make these conquests, but there's also a far fulfillment, and the nature of this question was about the drying up of the Nile River. The Antichrist, the earliest titles that were ever given of him, this cruel king of the north, before even Daniel and the uh, beast from the sea, the capital A Antichrist, all the others, Um, This is one of the earlier ones, and Isaiah 19 essentially summarizes what's going to be from the end of the tribulation into the millennium, and even describes Egypt's rebellion against the Lord during the millennium, being quickly rebuked from it, but also being restored. They are going to choose a king for themselves, and he's going to be cruel, but then the Lord will come in, and he will be a just king to them, better than any of the other options that they've made. As far as the timeline, we would say that there's a near and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is that Sargon II would conquer Egypt and Ethiopia, but the problem is we didn't see him, you know, dam up the Nile River or any of the other things that are also given in detail. So just like with other passages like Isaiah 7, we say, yes, there is no, or Isaiah 9, excuse me, there's a short fulfillment in that the Syrian Empire would fall with this child Emmanuel as the time bomb, basically, to the end of their empire. 
but there would be a far fulfillment of the virgin conceiving, and right. that would be the sign of the Messiah. The same way in Isaiah 19, there are things that applied immediately to them. They would lose in the coming battle against Assyria, but there would be a far fulfillment. The Antichrist is going to rule over them for a time, but <clears throat> Jesus will replace that power vacuum when he's personally disposed. Yeah, and uh, you know it culminates, as you mentioned, why do we believe that this extends into, say, the thousand-year reign of Christ and wasn't just that near fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Well, there are certain aspects of it that certainly have never been fulfilled uh, that uh, are really striking. Uh, for instance, the last part of Isaiah 19 and verse 23 says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come to Egypt, and the Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Mm. So it does appear that in the thousand-year reign of Christ, Assyria, Egypt, and Israel are going to have a favored place, not just Israel, but also Egypt and Assyria. And it is, isn't that just like the Lord, considering that down through time, Egypt is associated with one of the uh, great persecutions of the Jewish people, the mm. 400 years of suffering, the Assyrians, obviously the ones taking the northern ten tribes into captivity, God turns it around and makes them a blessing to the entire world. Yeah, yeah. and it's an aside of an aside of an aside, but for those of you mm-hmm. who may be uh, having heard this before, um, this is a part of one of the proof texts that the uh, cult known as the Falasha tribe try to claim, that they are the true inheritors of God's promises. If you have questions about that, let us know. We won't address it this moment, but be aware of that and note the actual context. It's not actually saying they're going to be the ones to bring the Messiah. Yeah. Very good. Well, Jamal, thank you for that question. Great question. Hope that helps you out and clears that up for you a little bit. Uh, I have a question come in through email from, uh, from David. Uh, he says, Pastor Scott, thanks so much for dedication to God's word all these years from Scott Richards Live to Reason for Hope. Um, you're very welcome. I'll speak on his behalf. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being part of it. Yeah, it's been 20 years now, huh? We mentioned that yesterday, about 20 years uh, plus of, of, uh, it was Scott Richards Live. It actually uh, began, uh, we called it Sunrise Live. uh, That's right. uh, We have our daily, uh, through the Bible teaching program called Sunrise. Right. uh, And uh, we we started doing the program on 9-11, just off the off the cuff, we just assumed that people would have a lot of questions on their minds. So uh, Robert Furrow and I went down to uh, the uh, Christian radio station, KGMS, and uh, uh, instead of doing our taped uh, teaching broadcast, we opened up the phone lines and answered questions. One thing led to another. That became uh, Sunrise Live. Uh, then we went national, and the uh, consultants we were working with said, no, it confuses people because they think it's going to be on at 6 in the morning. So they right. said it's going to be Scott Richards Live, because yeah. uh, that's, I guess, what they do. And I was never really comfortable with that. Um, we're still heard in places like Miami and Albuquerque and uh, a number of places across mm. uh, the country as far as syndication goes. But uh, we really felt like changing uh, the name of uh, the broke the broadcast to a reason for hope mm. was more appropriate first of all because who cares what i think i mean my opinion in three dollars and fifty cents will get you a cup of coffee at starbucks but we want to give people a reason for the hope that is within them the ability to be able to answer questions with meekness and reverence and yep. and that's pretty much how we got where we are yeah today. great well again david thank you for being part of it 
all those years. Uh, he was asking about flat earth theory. Um, he, someone asked that question, but he wasn't able to join us when you gave the answer to that. Um, he was asking about some resources that might help him, but also maybe you could go over just, um, some people say that the Bible teaches a flat earth. Um, what are some of the kind of rebuttals and debates we can have about that? And is there some yeah, we've, resources we've, you can recommend? We've produced uh, some articles and you gave the link for him, so he, he knows. So yeah, great. Coming from a sympathetic approach, why people subscribe to the flat earth theory, it's not because the Bible's plain about these sort of things. It's because they've been lied to so often by sources that just assume that this, uh, the earth is spherical. So in avoiding blind trust in organizations they no longer deem worthy of trust, they then blindly subscribe and trust to organizations simply on the merit that they're counter to the status quo, what the liars are saying, even if it's true. Uh, when it comes to reading then their conclusions into the Bible and insisting, no, I'm reading this passage in Isaiah, no, the Psalms clearly stay this, and then eisegeting 2 Timothy 3.16 and saying every word of God is inspired. That means that this can only mean what I've interpreted it to mean, and you're an apostate and a heretic, and I'm not speaking from experience because we've gotten 15 people calling us and saying those exact same things by rote. I'm being sarcastic. It is very taxing on the mind and soul. But the point being made, though, is just this. We empathize with the fact you don't like being manipulated. You don't like being lied to. But the argument and the assumption behind it isn't the plain teaching of Scripture. It's the assumption that because these people have lied to me, therefore they're lying to us about everything. And therefore, because they are lying to us about everything, then people who say the opposite of what's the status quo told to us by these liars are automatically more worthy of trust by default, simply because they're not what the liars say. Well, the liars say that there's a spherical earth, therefore I'm going to believe in a flat earth. And if you believe in a spherical earth, then you're one of those liars. We obviously don't follow the bad line of logic. So when it comes to some of their proof texts, when it comes to some of their arguments and mishandlings of the Hebrew, we could go all day. But as far as a good resource, again, we've provided links for them. We recommend Answers in Genesis, where they go through it both on a cosmological, on a historical, and in a scriptural examination of some of the texts that they would insist upon and go through and give as rational an answer as you could get. The problem is this isn't a rational argument. You need to understand emotions or what are at play here, and our emotions are what need to be diffused. And unfortunately, that only takes place over time. Yeah. Um, a lot of the uh, people that bring up this flat earth theory will uh, take a, uh, a really interesting point of view on the word firmament that is used in the book of Genesis, that God created a firmament or an expanse uh, during that particular time. They will say that uh, this was like a dome, uh, that that is uh, what uh, surrounds the earth. And if you go too far, you're going to run into ice all the way around on the earth. And, you know, they, they have all of these uh, pretty well-worked ideas as far as why they think this is going to happen. The term firmament um, in the original language, all it means is an, ex is an expanse. Uh, when we see it used, for instance, in other passages in Scripture, Psalm 19, we we're told the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth His handiwork. Mm. Uh, it is just another word uh, for the heavens. Mm. Uh, Hebrew poetry has a feature to it called parallelism. In other words, one of the aspects of Hebrew poetry is that they will use a number of different ways to say the same thing. They will use different words to express the same thought. 
in that sense, in Psalm 19, we get an idea of what the firmament is. It's not some dome. It is a reflection of the heavens, mm. if you will. And when the Bible speaks about the heavens, it speaks of it in three ways. It speaks of it as the atmosphere uh, around the earth. It speaks of the abode of the, the stars, the moon, and the planets. Uh, it also is used to describe the place where God uh, manifests his presence spiritually. So it's a very flexible word. Uh, unfortunately, some people, as you mentioned, Sean, I think motivated by the fact they've been burned uh, by people making, you know, declarative statements, uh, saying, uh, uh, because I said so, uh, and I'm smarter than you, you need to believe me. Uh, you know, they, they reject this sort of thing. And so they begin to pick and choose some of these passages. Uh, the only thing I would add to what you said, Sean, which I think is, is right on, is this. Just be really careful of becoming reactionary uh, to people. Uh, you know, when someone gets something wrong or something, someone has been, you know, maybe even dismissive or, or cruel or something like that, uh, we're never going to find the truth by saying, well, if you think that, I'm going to think the opposite. No, what we need to do is we need to sit down and read our Bibles and uh, understand what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, to be quite honest, uh, there's really nothing in the scripture that indicates that uh, the word uh, that the world is in a sense spherical. It just simply doesn't deal with the issues. Some people mm -hmm. point to Job 26 and verse 7 saying, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Uh, Isaiah 40 and verse 22 says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, mm. um, you know, the, these things do allow for a spherical earth, but you're not going to find any statement in the scripture that says that the earth is a sphere. And even if it did, I'm sure some uh, skeptic would say, well, the, the earth really isn't a sphere. It's really kind of an uh, oblate uh, spheroid. And so the Bible got it wrong. You know, the, the Bible just doesn't really address that. Why? because the Bible for the content that it covers is not a long book. Mm. Uh, it deals about our relationship with God primarily yep. and gives us the grounding through history and seeing the hand of God dealing with events that we can verify here on this earth. Uh, the confidence that we can know that Jesus is the Christ, that he has risen from the dead, and that by faith in him, we can be saved. Mm. The last lines of the Gospel of John, I think, are tremendous, that if uh, all the things that Jesus said and did in his earthly ministry were written down. I suppose even the whole world couldn't hold the books. So it tells me a couple right. things. First of all, the Bible isn't exhaustive about every single issue we might like to explore. Yep. Uh, some of these things are left for when we see the Lord face to face, then we'll understand it all. But the other side of it is this. What the Bible does teach is really, really important for us to understand. Mm. So, you know, to me, getting into a debate uh, about a flat earth, I realize the sincerity behind it, and some people who I, I really like and respect their ministries will hold that uh, particular position. I thoroughly disagree with them mm. on that particular point. But the other thing that I would just say is, you know, instead of making this the hill we're going to die on, um, you could convince somebody through your logic and reasoning that the earth is, in fact, flat. But how does that get a person a single step closer to a living relationship with God? Right. How, how, how does that show them their need for a Savior? Yeah. How does that reveal who Jesus is, what he has done for us, 
what his death meant as far as the forgiveness of our sins, yep. why we need to understand that he rose from the dead in a moment of history. It yep. simply doesn't move in that direction. Yep. Um, you know, there's there's all kinds of uh, of issues, for instance, politically, mm-hmm. that, you know, I have pretty strong convictions on, but you'll never hear me teach about them in the pulpit. Yep. Why? Because that's not what I'm here to do. I mean, you'll hear me talk about being pro-life because I believe the Bible is explicit about that. Yep. You'll hear me talk mean, about pro-Israel. I believe the Bible is explicit about mm-hmm. that. But there's an awful lot of things that I wholeheartedly believe in that, uh, personally, that I don't get into because the Bible just doesn't get into, uh, for instance, uh, economic theory or things mm-hmm. along this line. So yeah. uh, let, let's, let's talk about what matters because you know, we just don't have all the time in the world right. to go chasing down rabbit trails. Yeah, so. absolutely. That's a website you mentioned, Sean, uh, answersingenesis.org. Here it is right there. They've got some great articles on there. Still some Christmas stuff up there too, but um, they brought us the Creation Museum, right? And the Ark yeah. Encounter, yeah. yeah. Uh, which, God, I'd love to go there one yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> Entirely because... by their own funds, despite what anti-theist propaganda would try to condemn them for. Oh, yeah, is that so? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's beautiful. You guys haven't been, have you? Have you been to that? No, I have not. I have not. It's, uh, it's in uh, the Cincinnati area. Yeah. Uh, we've uh, talked a little bit about maybe doing a tour out there. Yeah. It would be a real fun thing to do. Yeah, it would. Yeah, yeah maybe I'll hit that up yeah. in the new year. <laughs> there you uh, go. <laughs> I think the call of God's on your life. No, why did I say that? I oh, no, answer. volunteering. I'm busy enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a terrible job that would be. Yeah. Um, yes, thank you, David, for, for being part of the show for so long and for that question and bringing that up. A uh, question from uh, Wayne. Is there any indication that Melchizedek was Shem? I have heard that Shem was still alive when Abraham was. How can this be? How could Abraham not know Shem if Shem was Melchizedek, his grandfather? Thanks yeah. again. Um, yeah, big truth. debate on that, but I think it turns on one word, doesn't it? Yeah, genealogy. Well, um, we know Abraham, yeah. or we know rather Shem's family history in Genesis 5. We're told explicitly in Hebrews 7 that Melchizedek was a priest without genealogy, without record of father or mother. So if we're to conclude that Shem changed his name first, that's a leap. Second, we're going to say, well, we know Shem is Melchizedek now, so now we know Melchizedek's name. Now scripture's been invalidated, second strike. The third strike is, of course, the assumption that, okay, given the fact, and this is an accurate statement, by the way, that Shem and Melchizedek were alive at the same time because we know how long Shem, Ham, and Japheth would have generally lived, and that was during the time that Abraham would have been alive. Maybe not as long as the time he traveled into Canaan, yeah. but definitely around the same time period, much like Noah was alive during the time of Adam. But the point being made is this. When we're talking about three men, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, across three different continents, Abraham is in Ur of the Chaldees. That's all the way on the far right end of the Middle East bordering on India. Shem and his descendants lived around Egypt. Japheth moved north into Turkey and eventually Europe. Ham populated the majority of Africa and yeah. the upper or the southern Middle East. So if we're going to ask the question, why how could they have not interacted with each other? We're committing what's called an anachronism, assuming our ability to travel, our proclivity to communicate and to get to know people within hundreds of miles of radiuses within each other, and of course the fact that they can't communicate within mouth reach it's like that uh, line from rocky 2 says uh, oh i'll call you he says oh what's your number i'll call you like this yo that's yeah. how they talk yeah. back then yeah. <laughs> so it's a very 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 broad stretch to assume that abraham would have met shem 
It's also a very, very broad stretch to say that Shem would have changed his name to Melchizedek and took on a priestly role, specifically in a Jebusite city known as Salem, eventually renamed Jerusalem in the uh, 10th century BC. Also note, we need to make sure that we go with all the information we have. What are we told in Hebrews 7? That's my take. You can make your point in a second. Uh, We're not told Melchizedek's genealogy. We're told Shem's genealogy. That right there invalidates it for me. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the the question always comes, I think that's an excellent answer as far as the Shem question goes. But the one that always immediately follows is, well, okay, uh, you know, the book of Hebrews says this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him, whom also Abraham gave a tenth part, first of all being translated king of righteousness and also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Uh, you know, and Then the writer of Hebrews goes on and talks about uh, that Melchizedek was so great that Abraham was blessed by him, and the one who blesses is greater than the one who is blessed. Uh, talks about how uh, Levi actually gave a tenth uh, to uh, Melchizedek because he was in Abraham's loins at that particular time. So there's people who will say, well, I don't think that Melchizedek was Shem. I think Melchizedek was Jesus because he's greater than Abraham, you know, receiving the tithe, the king of peace, and all this stuff. Yeah, all really interesting. And some, uh, like I say, Bible commentators, pastors that I respect take that point of view. Mm-hmm. To me, the one thing I can't get over, though, is uh, this very precise word the writer of Hebrews uses here. He, he says, but is made like the Son of God. Right. You know, in other words, you know, there are individuals that we meet in Scripture that are types of Jesus. Melchizedek was a type of Jesus because there were aspects of his life that can reveal to us quite a bit about who Jesus is. Another great example of this would be Joseph. Well, you read the life of Joseph, and boy, you see the parallels uh, between Joseph and Jesus. They're just tremendous. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's just a, an amazing thing. J. Vernon McGee uh, does a really wonderful uh, uh, job of, of putting together a chart where you can see the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Now, I've never heard anybody make the argument that Joseph was Jesus. Was Jesus yeah. But the, there, he was a type of Jesus in that his life foreshadowed an awful lot of things that Jesus would accomplish. Mm. That's what Melchizedek did. The, the word uh, made like the Son of God is the Greek word apomoiao. Tried to say that five times fast. <laughs> and it literally makes to, it means to make a facsimile or to produce a mold or a copy. Uh, so the writer of Hebrews isn't saying that Melchizedek is Jesus, mm. but his life and, uh, you know, this mysterious kind of out of nowhere here comes this guy who's the priest of the most high god abraham obviously thinks man you're right on and you know the lord and you're his representative and all of this and then he vanishes again shows up again in the psalms and again here in hebrews chapter 7 um you know fantastic guy an amazing type of jesus but not jesus himself so you know the 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 shem theory I think you did a great job of explaining that. But if anybody comes to you and says, well, I think uh, Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, I think they really have to get over that made like the Son of God. Yeah. Uh, when the writer of Hebrews could very easily say, well, 
He is the son was of God. Son of God. Yeah. Yeah. Let alone his grandson still ruling from the same city in the book of Joshua, Adonai Zedek. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, great. Thank you. Wayne, thanks for that question. Great question. And um, as you guys mentioned, it's a, a common thing. So hopefully a lot of the viewers that helped you out, Wayne, and people joining uh, with us today. We had a, a question from Jay. Is repentance of sins essential for salvation? So basically in layman's terms, do you have to stop doing bad things when you become a well, Christian? That, that's the key. What does repent mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, the word repent, I'll start out and you can uh, take the baton. The word repent is the Greek word metanoia. Uh, you've heard of paranoia. Well, that literally means to be beside or out of your mind. Mm. Uh, literally, metanoia means a change of mind. A change of mind about what? Well, better, a change of mind about who. Uh, mm. For me... One of the great working definitions of what change has to happen in our minds to repent, if you will, is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. We are told, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, we talk about repentance. We talk about a change of mind. Uh, faith comes by hearing, we are told, and hearing by the Word of God. We hear what the Word of God has to say about who God is, about what it means to know Him, what His nature is, that He is holy, uh, about what His Word has to say about the fact that we've all got a problem, a fallen sin problem, mm -hmm. uh, that God has made a way for us to be reconciled to Him through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. Uh, that uh, if we put our faith and our trust in him, he will uh, forgive us for our sins and reconcile us to him. Mm -hmm. When I understand these truths in my mind and I make the decision in my mind to quit believing things about God, myself, and what it means to know him that aren't true, mm -hmm. that is when repentance takes place. Mm -hmm. and, and there's an important distinction between repentance and change of behavior. Mm. John the Baptist, when he was baptizing people, the scribes and the Pharisees and so forth, came to be baptized. And he said, you vipers, you sons of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Real bridge builder, uh, secret sensitive guy John the Baptist was. Mm. He says, therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. repentance yeah. You know, and they said, well, what should we do to do that? And then he gives them a laundry list of things to do specifically that would show that they've made this 180, if you will, mm. that they're not trusting in themselves and their own righteousness anymore. But that's not what repentance is all about. Mm. Um, you know, Sean, maybe you can go into details on that. Why is the idea that you have to turn from uh, all known sin in order to become a Christian a non-starter? Well, because, and this is going back to the fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian, our salvation isn't accomplished by anything we do but what Christ has done. Likewise, our salvation isn't maintained or developed by anything that we do but what Christ does in us. The whole book of Galatians is built on that thesis, how can you, being made perfect, <laughs> or having been born in the Spirit, are now being made perfect through the flesh. Now, there's people who miss the whole sarcasm of Paul's point. When they are being told, your works, your, in Galatians' case, your observance of certain Jewish ceremonies, adding anything to the finished work of Christ, 
isn't just not the gospel. It's not just another gospel. It's not good news to begin with because where does it end? And he also has stronger words in Philippians 3 to describe those who are teaching that, but the point still stands. We always fall back on the fundamentals of salvation in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. For it is by grace, not our innate goodness, but God's goodness demonstrated towards us, that you are saved through keeping in repentance? Faith. Faith. Trust with reason, the Greek word pistis. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Then it goes on to note, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not by good works, but for for good works. Mm -hmm. It's describing a purpose, not an imperative. So when we're talking about, fancy words, but the point being made is this, when we're talking about the difference between repentance and sanctification, yes, the two are simultaneous, but they end up being so closely associated that well-meaning Christians wanting to prevent further problems down the road will say they're intertwined. And this is where the compromise comes in. When you hear sloganeering and you know all these statements like, unless Jesus is Lord of all, he's not Lord at all, mm-hmm. and then they'll take the end of, of Acts chapter 2 out of context and Peter noting, repent and believe the gospel. See, repentance and believing the gospel, this is how that's done, being baptized, and then they'll go into all this other sort of eisegesis. We need to make sure that we're taking the text at face value, and that's what? There is no example of salvation taking place apart from two key factors, belief in who Jesus is and what he's, and ultimately how he proved it, and of course, the intervention of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer. Mm-hmm. Now note, there are passages that forego laying it out in that way, but if we're going to say, by these works, we know that you're saved, that's something you'd assume, not something that you'd conclude. Right. Now, we need to be careful with that because what is the intent of twisting these passages to say, you got to stop sinning? Well, it's to encourage righteousness. Good thing? Good thing? I won't do the black Hebrew Israelite thing with you again. It's a good thing. <laughs> a when good we're thing. talking about thing. the idea of it's giving people thing. an incentive to believe in Jesus and to have a life that reflects that, both are good things. But if we dangle someone over hellfire, and say, if you aren't living according to Jesus, it's essentially trusting more in human fear than the finished work of the Spirit to lead someone into all righteousness. Because I have to make an open confession here. Been with the Lord not as long as those beside me have, but enough to know it was not only legitimate, but it also has impacted my life in tangible ways. Not every way, and there are ways that I still struggle with sin. I seek accountability for it, and notice this, because of the Spirit's work in my life, I care. I don't like it that I'm still struggling with these things, a la Romans 7. But if I assume that Jesus has to be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all, again, that's, I won't name pastors that are popularizing this, but that's not Scripture. If I conclude, well, these things are all good things, therefore if I lay them all out as the same thing, isn't that a better thing? And the answer is no. If I put anything as a higher priority or advertise anything, even good things, as on par with the most important thing, Mm. how is that not idolatry? How am I not taking something that God created to be good, like good works, and saying that's conditional for you to also receive the best thing? That's a lie. Mm. This is what we need to keep in order. 
when it comes to the work of salvation, it's the finished work of Christ. When it comes to the finishing of the work that Christ began in us, that's the Holy Spirit. When it comes to the fact this work began to begin with, that's the Father. When it comes to the opportunity I have to follow Jesus every single day, that's me. Through the Spirit, on account of the Son, according to the purpose of the Father. You see, it's not an either or, it's a both and an all. But when people then say, oh, so both and an all, holy living and salvation. Hold on. Where does one begin? Where does the one end? The answer is the dictionary. Repentance isn't something that happens out here, something that happens in here. What am I or to who am I repenting to? I think the best <coughs> summation of this was given at the end of First Thessal- or, yeah, First Thessalonians chapter 1, where he describes the conversion of the Thessalonian people. It says in verse 9, They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned. What's that word in Greek? How you turned. Right. That's the word repentance, that, literally. Yeah, that, no, yeah, yeah. To God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come now this is why I always encourage people to read first Thessalonians as far as early Bible reading because he tells them you didn't just stop sinning you turned to God he doesn't focus on the negative he mentions you turned from idols but to God, not to stop worshiping idols, but to serve the living God. Right. And to note, wait for Jesus' promise, which he also will go on to explain later in the book. The point of emphasis needs to be made with that, though. Just make sure that when we're talking about sanctification and repentance, mm-hmm. salvation and what that means, what we've been saved from, and how that's accomplished, like we talked about yesterday, more text rather than less. Yeah, yeah, and, and it really does come down to Repentance is allowing God's word to change our minds, right. which changes our hearts, which inevitably results in a change of life. Yeah. So that's probably the best way to keep it straight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Jay, for that question. Great question. That's a pretty common question as well. Uh, we've got just about three minutes left coming up here. A question from Yari. What does uh, the scripture mean when it says an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips? It's in Proverbs, I believe. Proverbs, uh, there are four kinds of Proverbs. Again, it's in the poetry section of the Old Testament. There are couplets, which is, think like a couple. It compares one theme to another in order to make both clear, taking something familiar with a point he's trying to make so that you understand what both are talking about. A couplet in this case is an example of someone showing affection, a kiss on the lips, something very good (laughs) in most situations, and a right answer. Okay. You guys understand that in most contexts, a kiss on lips is a good thing. You also understand to give a right answer, well, that's like that. It's Mm. making the comparison. It's just saying that a right answer is the sort of thing you want to do. Just like in kissing someone on the lips, it's a note of affection. It's a good thing. Yeah, it's one of the most loving things you can do for somebody to tell them the truth. Yeah, You know, there's another interesting proverb along that line. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Mm. Uh, so one of the least loving things that you can do uh, is, no matter how you're presenting it, uh, lead someone astray. Yeah. You know, you might uh, gussy it up in something that says, oh, you know, isn't this wonderful and doesn't make you feel good. Uh, but if you're leading someone away from a relationship with God mm. or papering over some issues in life that need to be dealt with, um, mm. you're not doing anybody any favors. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like white lies, 
told to spare someone's feelings, you know, maybe in a relationship or things. Is that kind of a dicey area? It's it's not the point Solomon's making. We yeah. don't determine the rule by the exceptions. Yeah. And again, I'm sure we'll go more into this when I'm talking about this with our student ministry in 10 years. But when we're talking about this point of a couplet, the emphasis is on bare bones facts, not saying mm-hmm. in all cases, in all situations. Let's just go one verse next. Uh, prepare your outside work, make it fit for yourself in the field, and afterward build your house. Now, this obviously isn't an instruction on pursuing agriculture foregoing living situations. It's not some scientific insight into how to properly uh, prepare or build homes. It's telling you in this situation, and this is just for the sake of time, that if you want to settle down somewhere, make sure that you have the ability to provide a service first. Mm -hmm. And again, this isn't in every situation. You may already have a, a home there and then you can start working. It doesn't mean you're sinning or violating this proverb. But the point of proverbs are to illustrate points and to say what? Simply this. Right answers are good things. Yeah. How good things? Well, think of a kiss on the lips. That's yeah. the point. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Great. Yeah, one of the sweetest things you can do for somebody. Yeah. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Yeah. 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 Makes yeah. sense. Makes yeah. sense. We're out of time for today. Uh, Sean, thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. Our it's the pleasure. weekend. We'll be back on uh, Monday, same time and same places. Thank you for being part of Reason for Hope. If you want to stay in contact with us while we're off air, uh, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for Hope all spelled out. Gmail.com. That's our email address. And again, or follow us on Twitter. Yeah. Yep. Scott Alpha H on Twitter as well. God bless you. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.